You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. We could talk about Donald Trump at the top of every show, every week. I actually have nightmares about that, talking about Donald Trump every Tuesday morning until 2020, or God fucking forbid, 2024. But believe it or not, Donald Trump isn't the only asshole who holds elected office in the United States right now. There's a lot of asshole action at the federal level, of course, with Republicans in control of both houses of Congress. We could talk about those assholes, asshole congressional Republicans, the ones coming to take your health care away. But I wanted to talk about assholes who are a little closer to home. Let's talk about Republicans in state government. What's going on at the state level? Quite a lot. Republicans control a record number of legislatures, state legislatures. We can't possibly cover every outrage. We don't have the time. The internet does not have the room. So let's take one issue, abortion, and quickly run through some highlights or lowlights brought to us by Republican lowlifes. In Virginia, State Delegate Ben Klein introduced HB 2264, which would defund Planned Parenthood in Virginia because with abortion rates at their lowest level since abortion was declared a constitutional right, now is the time to kneecap Planned Parenthood where millions of American women get birth control and, of course, to repeal Obamacare. The Affordable Care Act made contraception more widely available and Ben Klein is a good Republican soldier and he wants to see Obamacare, the ACA, repealed. It's a neat trick. Run for office as an abortion opponent. Once you're in office, drive the abortion rate up. Then, when you're running for re-election, decry those rising abortion rates that you helped create. Because for assholes like Ben, it's not about protecting the babies. It's about power. Power and, of course, punishing and controlling women. In Florida, State Rep. Aaron Grawl introduced Florida HB 19, which would allow women to sue doctors for terminating their pregnancies. We've all heard stories from abortion providers about seeing patients in their clinic that they've seen in the anti-choice picket lines outside their clinic. This would allow those conflicted women to have their abortions and their moral superiority too. Get the abortion you need, sue the doctor to absolve yourself of the guilt you feel later. In Oklahoma State Rep. Justin Humphreys, HB 1441, would require a pregnant woman to provide the identity of the father in writing to her abortion provider before undergoing the procedure and require her to get the father of the fetus's permission before terminating the pregnancy. Handing one-night stands, vengeful ex-boyfriends, and abusive spouses a veto power over a woman's right to make decisions about her own body? Yeah, what could possibly go wrong with that? In Arkansas, State Rep. Andy Mayberry, yes, that's right, Mayberry, introduced the Arkansas Unborn Child Protection from Dismemberment Abortion Act in December, which would make second trimester abortions a Class D felony. Those second trimester abortions are the safest and most commonly performed form of abortion. So after arguing for the last decade that they had to harass abortion clinics with trap laws, that's targeted regulation of abortion providers, that required hospital admission privileges and full surgical facilities for an outpatient procedure on site in order to quote-unquote protect women, anti-choicers are now moving, at least the ones named Mayberry, to make abortion itself more dangerous for women. 
I was going to make a point here, but Jennifer Lawless, co-author of It Still Takes a Candidate, Why Women Don't Run for Office, and most recently, co-author of Running from Office, Why Young Americans Are Turned Off to Politics, made the point better than I could on a recent episode of the wonderfully informative, wonderfully wonky Ezra Klein Show, a deep dive podcast from Vox that features really fascinating long-form interviews with news and policymakers. Quickly, Lawless herself, she ran for office, federal office, ran for Congress in 2006, and had to raise a ton of money to do it. Local and statewide races require a lot less campaign cash and a lot less soul-killing fundraising. But Ezra points out that people just aren't as inspired to run for those offices. And then he puts this question to Lawless. Make the case on why people listening should run for offices, should, should open up a book and find out what offices they can run for near them that are not national politics. Two big reasons. The first is over the course of the last 20 years or so, we've really seen federalism take hold where at the state and local level, so many decisions are being made. And the notion of small government at the national level is giving more and more opportunities for state and local governments to play an active role. So when we think about overturning Roe versus Wade, for example, what that's going to mean if the Trump administration manages to appoint two Supreme Court nominees and the Senate confirms them, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, all abortion-related decisions will be made at the state level. At the state level right now, more than 30 states have on the books laws that are currently unconstitutional because they restrict a woman's right to choose beyond what the Supreme Court has said is okay. All of those laws go into effect when Roe v. Wade is overturned. So if you care about those kinds of issues, the state level is the place to be over the course of at least the next four years. The left in the United States, as we've recently demonstrated to great effect, is really good at marching. And marching, it does make a difference. It can make a difference. It has, as we've seen over the last few weeks, really made a difference. We're also good at spelling. Unlike the Tea Party, the signs at the Women's March and the protests at the airports were embarrassing typo free. And we're also really good at knitting, as it turns out, all those hats on a deadline. But you know what? We have to get better at running at the state level. Because like Lawless says, that is where the action is. So, care about protecting a woman's right to choose? March. For sure, march. But don't just march. Run. Run for office. Okay, coming up today on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your challenging cues, lots of my hopefully insightful A's, and maybe an easy D or two. And on the subscription magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, Adam Saffron joins us from Northwestern University for a What You Got on the Neurology of the Female Orgasm. Subscribe to the magnum edition of the Lovecast at savagelovecast.com. Hi, Dan. I'm a single female, uh, straight, 22 years old, and I'm from Canada. So my friend recently got into a really big breakup um, and had sort of this rebound with a guy who he was really great, evidently a really great lover. But in the end, um, she contracted genital herpes from him. I was there with her through the whole process, and uh, she was really upset about it. She had no idea. and. Uh, you know, she had a really hard time because of it and, you know, moved on and is now dating someone else. And well, a friend from another circle is now dating the same guy and they're keeping their relationship under wraps because of the other friend. They don't want to be inconsiderate to her. I don't really know what to do. I feel like 
I watched what happened to my first friend and how horrible it was for her and and how she didn't know about this. And he obviously wasn't telling her at any point. They've been together for, I guess, a few months. And now this new friend is with this guy and the same guy. And I just feel like I have no place to tell her, but I still feel like, how can I not after seeing what happened to my first friend? So I'm wondering if you have any advice. What should I do? Should I just keep my mouth shut? And how am I going to deal with it if she goes through the same traumatic experience later? Because I didn't tell her what I know. According to the most recent data that I could find, and I'm quoting here from a news article at CTV News, as many as one in seven Canadians aged 14 to 59 may be infected with herpes simplex type 2 virus, and more than 90% of them may be unaware of their status, a new study suggests. So one in seven and 90% of that one in seven don't know that they have herpes. I'm curious what this guy said to your friend when she became symptomatic, when she went to the doctor, when she discovered that she had herpes. Did he know that he had herpes? Did he knowingly expose her to herpes? Were they not using protection? Or was he unaware that he had herpes? It's also possible that your friend had herpes, that she was one of the 90% who have it and don't know that they have it and only became symptomatic coincidentally during the couple of months she spent with this guy with something that is so common and in most people, not that big a deal. Most people don't show symptoms or have one outbreak and never have another outbreak. It's really hard to assign blame with any certainty. It could have been him. She could have been exposed in a previous relationship. She could have been exposed 10 years ago and then her immune system took a dip during this relationship and she became symptomatic. She had an outbreak. Maybe it was her second outbreak and her first outbreak was so minor that she didn't even notice it, which is also something that happens with herpes. Seems to me that when one in seven people have something that can be passed through skin-to-skin contact, you go into each new relationship where you're rubbing your skins together, either aware that herpes or HPV are known knowns, are risks you're running, are things that you are statistically likely to be exposed to and likely then to potentially acquire. Or you go into those relationships unaware of those known knowns. You go into them in ignorance. And how then do you assign blame? I think you should keep out of it. I think you should speak to all of your friends about using condoms, about safety, about what they can do to protect themselves rather than run to this one girl and tell her that, She's dating the herpes monster because you don't know that and you can't know that. And that would be unfair to him and an insult to the intelligence potentially of your friend who may know that this is a risk that she is running. This is a risk that she has shouldered, that she assumes as she dates around or sleeps around or whatever the fuck she's doing. She gets out there and dates and mates in hopes of finding a long-term partner that You're playing the odds with these easily transmitted, in most cases, no big deal, sexually transmitted infections. So, yeah, unless when it all came out that your friend had herpes, this guy jumped up, twirled his mustache and said, aha, I know that you have herpes. I gave you herpes. I had herpes and I had an outbreak and I wasn't telling you because I don't care about you or your safety. I'm glad you have herpes. (laughs) Unless he did that, you really can't point the finger at him and it would be unfair to him. But if you're concerned about your friend who happens to be dating him, 
a general conversation with her about the steps she can take to protect herself from this and other sexually transmitted infections. With the caveat that condoms help, but when it comes to -to skin-to-skin contact, when it comes to HPV, when it comes to herpes, condoms only provide some protection, not nearly as much protection as they provide for HIV or against HIV, against syphilis, against gonorrhea, but they do provide some protection. Hey, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old gay male in a committed relationship, a monogamous relationship, and lately I've really been struggling with my sexual desires and wanting to have sex. Uh, My sex in my relationship is amazing, um, and I'm not sure what it is, but I just have this desire to be with other guys um, sexually, just just to fool around. Um, I have jealousy issues that I I know I need to deal with and I don't want to have an open relationship and I've just really internally been struggling with going online and looking and nearly hooking up and then not hooking up and then this morning I just went and um, jacked off with a guy in a park and I'm just like filled with this insane amount of guilt and um, I know I can never tell my partner because he'll leave me and that'll be the end of that um, even though it's the right thing to do and I'm sure that's what you would tell me to do but I'm just wondering if you have any advice for how I can deal with my sexual, I don't know if it's an addiction or just a compulsion where I'm constantly thinking about sex and I'll sit there on my phone for hours and just be looking at the possibility of hooking up and I'll even to the point of kind of ghosting people because I start feeling guilty of cheating and then, but today I did what I did and I, now I can't take it back and that's, I just have to live with that. I don't know if I should talk to a psychiatrist or my regular doctor. I, I just, I don't know. And the thing that kills me is my partner's amazing. The sex is amazing. So I feel like a piece of shit of a human being. I, I just, I need help processing all this. I don't know what else to do. And I know I probably sound crazy and you're shaking your head and probably going to tell me I'm doing everything wrong and I'm a bad person and all that. I don't know. I just would really love some advice. Let's zoom out for just a second and think about sex. Sex is older, stronger, and wiser than we are. Sex, natural selection, spontaneous mutation. Sex built us. Sex will unbuild us. Sex is building whatever it is that's going to come after us after we fuck the planet up to such an extent that we can't live here anymore. Sex is already at work. Evolution is already at work through the mechanism of sex, creating the next dominant species for this planet. Might be cockroaches. Maybe they'll be orange. And yet we talk about sex when we talk about our own sex lives as if we're in charge of it, as if sex takes our orders, when really the opposite is true. We take orders from sex. We are constantly in a position of having to negotiate our surrender to sex. And when you are negotiating your surrender to sex, you can make demands. You can itemize what it is that you would like from sex. But really you have to figure out a way to incorporate into your life in a healthy way The shit that sex wants from you and the sex that you want because you're going to get it in the end. Sex is going to get it in the end. Sex is going to have what sex wants and it's going to drag you by the junk in many cases along for the ride. Look at all the high profile anti-gay closet cases who ultimately get outed because they take a rent boy to Europe to quote unquote lift their luggage. Google George Reekers, hugely famous anti-gay homophobe, founder of an anti-gay, ex-gay organization, gets caught carting a really cute twink prostitute 
around Europe. Sex won. Sex beat George Reekers in the end. Sex beats all sorts of straight people too in the end. And sex just beat you, caller. You want the guy you've got, the commitment that you've got, the great sex, the great partner. You also want extramarital or extra boyfriendal, whatever it is right now. You want more. You want these outside encounters. You want more sexually than you can get just in this ostensibly monogamous relationship. So what do you do? Well, you can lie and cheat and run around, which is currently what you're doing. You can let the pressure build and build and build rather than having an honest conversation with your partner until you impulsively go off and do something. Then you feel terrible and guilty about as you have done and now do feel terrible and guilty about, or you can negotiate the terms of your surrender. You can go to your partner and say, I want to be with you. And the sex is awesome and amazing. And I love our relationship, but I struggle with these desires. Do you struggle with these desires too? That's a good way to start that conversation. Sometimes find myself thinking about other guys. Sometimes find myself looking at apps. How do we accommodate or incorporate these desires for others that I'm experiencing into our relationship? Or or are they just not allowed? Is this just a no-go? You need to have that conversation with your partner. You're a gay man in a gay relationship. Most gay men regard a monogamous commitment as an opt-in, not a default setting. Maybe you guys had that conversation and you opted in to a monogamous commitment. But if you, a la straight people, if you just blew into it as if monogamy was your default setting and the primary and definitional default setting of all committed relationships, you need to walk that back. You need to have a conversation about that because clearly that is not going to work for you. And sooner or later, you're going to impulsively reach out and do something that destroys the relationship that you're in. So what do you do now? You said that you probably ought to tell your partner that telling your partner is the right thing to do and that I was going to tell you to run and tell your partner to confess. I am not going to tell you to do that. I tell people to do the opposite of that all the time. If this was a one-off, if this was a tiptoe up to the abyss and then a bungee jump into the abyss and then back out of the abyss and it's lesson learned and you're never going to do this again, you don't have to tell your partner about it. Sometimes it's the more loving thing to do to not tell your partner about it. If indeed you're going to recommit to monogamy and this isn't a mistake that you're ever going to make ever again, but I don't think that's the case here. I think this is a mistake that you will make again because you want this guy You want the great sex, you want the committed relationship, and you want some sexual adventures too. You can have sexual adventures with your partner. Perhaps you could have sexual adventures if they were jail only with your partner's consent, joyful consent maybe, maybe with his active participation as well. Or you can have the occasional sexual adventure with your partner's forbearance if he's not so into it. But that's the price of admission that he has to pay to be with you is you're going to sneak off to the woods every once in a while and jack off with a stranger. Maybe he could live with that. But you need to have a conversation, not with me. I can't give you absolution and I'm not going to order you to tell him the truth. You need to have a conversation with your partner about your feelings. You need to stop hiding your sexuality from your partner because sex is going to out you because sex is more powerful than you. Sex is in charge. You need to negotiate the terms of your surrender. And that's something you need to do with your partner. You don't necessarily have to go to him and say, this happened, therefore we need to have a conversation about whether this can happen again. You can go to him and say, 
I'm a little obsessed right now. I keep thinking about X, Y, and Z. Where are you? What are you thinking about? The sex in our relationship is great. I love it. But I'm sometimes tempted, seriously tempted. You must be tempted too at times. Remember, and you can say this to your partner, monogamy, a monogamous commitment does not mean you don't want to fuck other people or think about fucking other people or fantasize about fucking other people or just fucking around with other people. It means you refrain from doing those things. You're still gonna wanna. So go into that conversation with your partner confident that he still thinks about other people too sometimes, that he still wants to fuck around perhaps with other people sometimes. Ideally, an accommodation can be made that allows both of you to be who you are or you incorporate that energy, that desire for others into your monogamous relationship. Some gay couples define monogamy as we only have sex with each other and sometimes we have threesomes. That's a definition of monogamy that you often hear gay men cite. Maybe that can work for you, but you need to start having an honest conversation with your partner about your mutual terms of surrender in your relationship with sex, which is in charge. I'd also recommend that you pick up this book that I'm reading that you actually can't pick up right now because it is not yet published, but I am reading an advanced copy, Esther Perel's new book, State of Affairs. There are chapters in it about why people who are happy in their relationships, who are satisfied, not just with their partners, but with their sex lives with their partners, who love their partners very much, why those people cheat at times. You are happy, you are satisfied, the sex is great, you love your partner, you cheated. Why? Did you need to assert your autonomy? Did you need to feel young again? Did you need to feel desirable again? What is it? There's something about going out there and cheating that doesn't always mean there's something wrong with the relationships. We pretend that if we can just set all the dials and knobs correctly, that a relationship can be infidelity-proofed, that it can be rendered immune to desire for others, immune to cheating. And that's just not true. Sometimes people in great relationships will cheat for their own reasons. I'm not sure what your reasons are. You need to think about what your reasons are because that's part of what you need to talk to your partner about when you have that conversation about monogamy, opt-in or default setting. And you have that conversation about wanting to fuck other people and whether you have to pretend that's not true. And if you can both allow for that, that of course you desire other people, are you ever allowed to act on those desires and under what circumstances? You need to have a much bigger conversation with your partner and you need to stop beating yourself up about this jack-off session in the woods. Hi, single, straight, pregnant woman in the Northeast, although maybe not for long. What happened is that um, twice during my pregnancy, my boyfriend um, got into my personal messages and read through them without my knowledge. And he then, using the information he read, he didn't find anything directly, but then he plied me with questions until he could catch me uh, saying something something that pinged wrong as a lie to him based on what I'd wrote. Um, and he's done this twice. And both times the lies were, at least in my opinion, uh, things that were just things that had changed since he'd read them. Um, and the second time this happened, I thought he had accessed my stuff remotely because it happened while I was out of state. And I freaked out and I'm, you know, went crazy and went through all the security measures. I deactivated Facebook, which is a big deal for me. You know, I, I confronted him like saying, this is abuse. Like you can't do this. You can't keep spying on me. And he's like, no, I'm going to, I don't trust you. I'm going to keep spying on you. 
I don't know what I can do. Like, I'm freaking out. I'm, I don't, like, it's literally a crime to do this, I think. And he says he's going to keep doing it to me. And I'm like, I don't, I think I'm out. Like, I can't do this. And so now here I am pregnant and freaking out because I, God, I think I made a mistake. Like, I should do whatever I can to keep this guy in my life. Even if it means putting up with stuff like that and like the hopes that stuff will change. Sometimes abusers lay their cards on the table early in the relationship. The red flags are there and apparent. Sometimes we don't see them early in a relationship because we're besotted because we are in the infatuation stage, the cliche love is blind stage. And our friends stand around slack jawed going, Oh, he should. And if our friends are really our friends, they pull us aside and say, look at this, look at this, look at this bad signs, red flags likely to escalate over time. Perhaps a move to isolate you, perhaps belittling and abusive and disparaging comments and language. Perhaps a move to isolate you from your, your friends. Jealousy about former partners that you're still on friendly terms with. Monitoring your online presence. Bad signs, red flags. It is no character flaw to have dated someone who is on the abuser's spectrum. Right? I've dated people who were uh, abusive. A- anybody can. And best case scenario, you're with somebody who's abusive the infatuation burns off like the fog and you can see it and your friends are there elbowing you in the side saying, look, 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 look at this. Oh my God. Oh my God. And you go, not every abuser is good enough to lay their cards on the table early. Not every abuser starts waving those red flags around while it's still relatively easy for you to extricate yourself from the relationship. Some abusers lay in wait. Some abusers wait until you are, emotionally or financially dependent on them in a way that makes you leaving feel impossible. And some abusers wait until you've scrambled your DNA together. Some abusers wait until you are pregnant or until you have a child or two or three to lay those cards on the table and reveal themselves for who they are and to inform you about their intentions toward you going forward, which is to use you as a punching bag now that you are trapped Sometimes a literal punching bag, sometimes a figurative punching bag. Your soon-to-be ex, whatever the fuck he is now, boyfriend or husband, he waited until you were stuck or he believed you to be stuck. He waited until you were pregnant to start digging through your social media, to start accusing you of lying, to start gaslighting you with this bullshit. And now you have to go. Father of this kid, not father's kid, you got to go. You have to end this. He has informed you that he's not going to stop and that this is only going to get worse. I'm here to tell you that this will only get worse over time. You said, I should do, or I need to do whatever I can to keep this guy in my life because of this baby. That's what he's counting on. That is what he is counting on, that you will feel that way, that you are stuck, you are trapped, and that you have to do whatever you can to keep him in your life for this kid. And that gives him license to not stop, to continue to evade your privacy, continue to break the law, potentially, depending on where you live, and to ramp it up over time to get worse. And I'm sorry, maybe I'm jaded, maybe I'm cynical, maybe I've gotten questions like this for too long, but it will only get worse if you stay. If he sees that he can get away with beating you up like this, terrorizing you like this, 
and that you will stay, that opens the floodgates. In his mind, that gives him permission to be his worst self, to continue to lay abuser cards on the table in the expectation that you will sacrifice yourself and your sanity on the altar of parenting with this guy, of living with this guy. No, 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 no. You have to go. Get yourself a lawyer. Start thinking about paternity issues, about child support. Gather your friends. Call your family. Tell them about the situation you're in. Ask them to come through for you. Now is the time that you need them to come through for you and be there for you and help you get out of this relationship and get on your feet and be there for you throughout the rest of this pregnancy because you're going to have to do this on your own. Hi, Dan. So I'm a 22-year-old gay man living in Vermont, currently in a relationship with two older men. Um, They are currently married to each other, but we've been together for a while, and we want to go through a wedding ceremony with the three of us. Obviously, it wouldn't be legally binding or anything like that, but we have people telling us that it's something we shouldn't do, even though it's something we all believe in and want. Believe in meaning that it's something we should be able to do. We believe that we're going to be together for quite a while, if not forever. Um, I'm just wanting to know your opinion on the matter, I suppose. I have no beef with the triad gay relationship. I have no beef, no qualms about this proposed wedding ceremony, you marrying symbolically. Lots of same-sex couples had symbolic-only marriages before even civil unions or domestic partnerships came along because it was emotionally significant to them. Yeah, so a, a thruple that wants to have a ceremony that is about the emotional significance of it, not the legal incidence of it because they don't exist yet. Absolutely. I support that throuple's choice to do that. I have a beef with just one thing, though. You're 22 years old. That's too young to get married to anybody, much less too young to get married to two somebodies that you feel now that you'd like to spend the rest of your life with these guys. Honor that feeling by getting engaged and staying engaged for, I don't know, five-ish years? Wait until you get into your mid-late 20s before you have a great big public ceremony. 22 is too young to marry, in my opinion. I would be giving you this advice if you were a straight guy calling about getting married to one woman that you were in love with at 22. I would be giving you this advice if you were a lesbian calling about getting married to the lesbian girlfriend or the lesbian couple at 22. And I'm giving you this advice in this circumstance. As are the people who don't want you to do it, you don't have to invite those people to the ceremony or to the wedding. Invite people who love and support you three as a thruple, you three as the awesome tridict unit you are, but you're just 22. So please, don't book the hall, don't order the cake until 2022. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I am a 22-year-old female living in the Midwest. Um, recently found out about a month ago that I'm pregnant. Um, however, my period's never been uh, super regular, so um, tracking when my last menstrual period was and how far along I was has been difficult. The first time I got an estimate, they told me I was probably about six weeks along, and then I was scheduled for an ultrasound, 
And when I got the ultrasound, they told me I was actually further along than I thought. And I was, you know, three weeks further along than I was thinking originally. I have an apartment that I'm exclusive with now. However, we haven't been exclusive for a long time and we've been fucking and seeing each other for quite a while, but also seeing other people for a while. And I told him when I found out I was pregnant and thought I was six weeks long that I was pregnant and it was his because that was the only person I was with at that time. However, being three weeks further along puts someone else into the picture. And that's about a month before I expected that I was pregnant. And uh, so I had fucked another guy. We used condoms and I'm not really sure if I have to bring this up. However, I feel like I really, really want to just to be honest and open about it in case by some weird chance, like it's not his kid. (laughs) So I want to bring it up. I'm trying to figure out the best way to bring it up without kind of making him resent me in any way because we're in a relationship now and uh, he's thinking it's his kid and I really love where we're at with things and I don't want to ruin it. However, I want to be open and honest and share that with him. Usually when people say, help me tell someone this thing that's likely to upset them, help me game this out. They want me to give them language that's going to make this thing that's potentially explosive as hell and unwelcome, not explosive and welcome. And there's no way to do that. There's no gloss you can put on this. There's no sugarcoating this. You just have to go to him and say, I just found out that I'm three weeks further along than I originally thought I was. And the odds that you are the father, biologically, genetically, the father of this kid are much lower than previously believed. In fact, I believe X guy to be the father, biologically, genetically, not you. And then he gets to make a choice. He gets to make a decision about what he wants to do going forward. Does he want to parent with you this child is going to be the father of a child that he's not genetically related to as someone who is not genetically related to the child that I am the father of. That is a thing that men will do. That is a thing that men can choose to do. And some men unknowingly uh, under 1% of men unknowingly are raising kids that are not genetically related to them. They believe themselves to be the biological fathers of, but they are not. So not telling him, That's an option. It's not an option I endorse, but obviously the data, the statistics tell us that it is an option that other women have selected. If he stays, you can parent together. If he decides to go, but he can't do this, then you have decisions to make around reaching out to the other guy, around whether you're going to ding him for child support. You have a decision to make around whether you want to continue to carry this pregnancy to term. You can avail yourself of the right to terminate this pregnancy if all the things you now know change how you feel about becoming a mother at this moment with this person, this other person, not the person you expected that you would parent with. The dicey situation. It's on him, though. You can't decide what you're going to do until you know how he feels and what he wants to do. And again, there is no way to put a ribbon on this and make it a pretty package. You just got to go dump it on him and then see where you are. We're going to take a quick break from your calls because there are sex researchers and scientists out there conducting studies and finding out new and interesting things about who we're fucking and why we want to fuck them and how we're fucking them. And every once in a while, we like to invite one of those researchers or scientists onto the show 
to share with us the results of their latest study in a little segment we like to call What You Got. Joining us by phone, Adam Saffron, a researcher in psychology and neuroscience at Northwestern University. So, Adam, what do you got for us? So, I recently wrote a paper where um, I reviewed a lot of the literature on rhythms in the brain, and I applied it to understanding sexuality and orgasm. Mm -hmm. In this paper, I talk about an evolutionary model of uh, what I think the purposes of orgasm are and the role that rhythms play. Uh, I talk about the mechanisms in the brain of how that works and how there might be uh, some gender differences with respect to this. To start out with, the paper focuses on um, why might rhythms be so central to sex? Like, What are rhythms doing? Why is sex rhythmic? Uh, this story seems to be a really old one. Um, maybe 500 million years old at least. <laughs> and wait, wait, wait a second. Before you go on, what do you mean by sex is rhythmic? Define that. Sex is rhythmic in that when we're either um, masturbating or having people are having sex with each other, um, they're stimulating themselves and each other in a rhythmic fashion. There's a, a, a pace and a regularity it's not um, just all over the place, but there's um, a, a certain semi-predictable uh, rhythm to the stimulation. And people manipulate that rhythm while they're having sex. They speed up, they slow down, they get up to that, you know, they tiptoe toward the point of orgasmic inevitability and they tiptoe back from it and they manipulate that. That's what you're talking about here. That's exactly the thing. And it's this um, very... Um, potentially delicate and um, skilled dance that you do to experience pleasure and to give pleasure to your partner. And extend the life of that pleasure, to extend the experience of it by delaying. Yes, yeah, to um, both make sure you can stretch it out and have the most overall pleasure and to um, make sure that you're staying in this uh, zone of stimulation that is pleasurable. So you have to be adjusting the rhythm. Are you trying with this study to figure out why it is we sex evolved this way with this rhythmic sort of component that we just don't look at each other and explode or get naked and get close and explode and it's over? You're trying to figure out what evolutionary purpose that rhythmic thing played? Is that it? Uh, that's part of it. The evolutionary purpose and uh, mechanistically uh, in the brain, how does it work? So what is the evolutionary purpose? Well, the evolutionary purpose would be to select the highest quality mates and to make sure that you mate more with mates who have essentially a better fit for you and your genes. And mm -hmm. so what you would want to do with mate choice is you want to, um, to have some sort of test that you have to pass to be chosen. And so in this case, if rhythms are somewhat difficult to produce a a strong rhythm, a stable rhythm, and sometimes a changing rhythm based on uh, what your partner needs, this would be not simple. This is uh, a lot of things have to be going right with the organism for this to work. But, but wait, wait, by the, by the time you figure out that somebody is bad at rhythm, you're already mating with them. So how does it impact mate selection? Exactly. So it's a similar story 
for song, for dance, and for mating. So you're having these multiple stages where rhythms are gating whether you can proceed further. So you're already evaluating in the mate song. You're then evaluating more if you get close enough to experience the mating dance. And then you have another uh, level of selection for sex itself. And all of these will influence both if you proceed and whether you want to repeat things, whether you want oh. to, do you want to have what that dance I... again? Right. Whether you want to bond with this person as a partner. I mean, you know, the longer it goes, the more pleasurable it is, the likely you are to be swamped with all those pleasure hormones and then chemically bond with this person too. But what you're saying is that you're, you're scoping somebody or, you know, one organism is scoping another organism for other ways that rhythm may be uh, demonstrated and good rhythm may be demonstrated before you get down to the, the bump and uglies rhythm. Exactly. And then ultimately, uh, at, when this, this plays out long enough, it might result in bonding and uh, a, a longer term mate or not, depending on the species we're talking about and the person. And the other aspect, and the other aspect you said you were studying was the brain and why we're coded to this? Uh, yeah. So the idea is that uh, the rhythmic stimulation uh, can cause a process of entrainment so that this frequency of stimulation can influence your, uh, your brain waves or the synchronous activity in your brain. Um, if you like, flash a light to someone's eyes, and then you look at the visual parts of their brain, you're going to see more activity at that frequency. Same thing with sounds. Um, and also the same thing with sexual stimulation. This mm -hmm. stimulation, with sex in particular, um, there's all these different sensations all coming in at once at the same frequency, all um, with the potential to create uh, an influence or to influence your brain to be more active at that frequency. This is potentially important because if many neurons are going at a given frequency, they can send signals better and you can better attend to things at that same frequency. So the rhythm can train your brain to increase its activity at a frequency, which can then increase your ability to attend to the rhythm, which can then increase your ability to become entrained by that rhythm which can then, and so on. And so this idea is you have this bi-directional relationship between um, attention and attrainment, which can allow you to focus very intensely on the sexual act and the sexual stimulation. Wow, I'm going to have to listen to that a couple of times I think, before <laughs> I can completely follow it. For the casual sex haver out there, which is my audience, what's the takeaway from your study? What's, what do people need to know? What? people should know is that one of the most important parts of the quality of the sex act and what makes it feel the way it does is likely the rhythmic nature of it, the quality of the rhythms, the sensitivity of the rhythms to what's going on at that moment. And that this might be the thing that you want to focus on. Uh, this, this might be something to keep in mind as a, uh, something that can enhance uh, your enjoyment of sex and your ability to help your partners enjoy sex. So for folks out there who want to learn more about your study, uh, where is it published and what's the title and how can they find it? So the study is 
What is orgasm? A model of sexual trance and climax via rhythmic entrainment. It can be found online um, at the journal Socioaffective Neuroscience and Psychology, and it's free for everyone to read, and it goes into a lot more detail. Adam Saffron, researcher in psychology and neuroscience at Northwestern University. Thank you so much for joining us for what you got. Really appreciate it. No problem. Take care. Hi, Ben. Uh, My name is Joe, and I've been married to the same wonderful woman for the last 24 years. Uh, She and I obviously had our ups and downs like any married couple, but uh, recently she's been very, very distant. The explanation I get from her is that it's menopause. Um, She's, well, she's about that age. And, you know, she claims it's all a a hormonal thing. (sighs) She's, She's not paying attention to me. She's told me that, you know, that her feelings are all messed up because of this. I've, I've accepted that, you know, um, I have been patient with her for the last year or so, but I feel I'm being shut out and I'm beginning to feel that her explanation isn't the whole story. Um, I don't think she's cheating on me. I, I really don't. I do believe that, that her feelings are messed up because of menopause. I, and a man, I mean, I have needs, uh, I, I'm, you know, I have to take care of business in the shower because she isn't willing or able or whatever to take care of it, you know, herself. And I, I'm fine with that. You know, I, I understand that she has a thing going on that is more important than what I have going on. I hate to, I feel like I'm a needy jerk because I'm putting my feelings before her. I mean, yes, she has this psychological, physio, physiological thing going on. And here I am wanting to be with my wife in a physical way. But she has this thing going on that isn't allowing her to do that. Or maybe she just doesn't want to. I don't know. Every time I talk to her, all I get is, I'm sorry. And that's it. You know, I get this apology. I don't get an explanation other than a hormonal thing. And I want to support her. I want her to, I want to work with her through this. But anytime I talk to her about it, we don't get anywhere. And I feel like a real jerk because, you know, here I am. All I want to do is, you know, I want to bust a nut once in a while. But I want to support my wife. And she is the most important person in my life, but I don't know how to be there for her when she shuts me out. So I ache for you. I feel bad for you. It's yeah. a it's a difficult position to be in, and it's not a position that a lot of people have much sympathy for the folks who find themselves in it, that you should just go without and support your wife by not having needs of your own and support your wife by not even raising the subject of your desire to still be sexually active, preferably with her. Right. Yeah. Most definitely with her. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm not sure what to tell you. I do think that I think both of you need to get into couples counseling and you need to have a conversation with her. That's not about sex and your need to bust the occasional nut in the shower or somewhere else that might be better, but intimacy in your marriage and what this means going forward. 
if what this means is she's hit menopause and if she has no libido and she's absolutely done with sex and doesn't want to do anything about that, what does that mean for you two as a couple? Does she have the right to unilaterally end your sex life? And is that a price of admission yeah, that you're willing to pay to stay with her? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the question I'm asking myself is is where, where where's the line and where do I draw it? And, you know, it, it's not just about sex. It's it's it, it's about again, it's about intimacy. It's about being the woman that I want to be with. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, it's it's I mean, there is a portion of it that's about busting and that, but you know, that's not, that's not the point. Right. But honestly, and there are, there are kind, there are degrees of intimacy that aren't about dicks, fucking pussies. There are degrees of intimacy, Mm -hmm. places you can go that are about skin to skin contact and comfort and closeness. But if every time you initiated or suggested going to that place, let's just lay with each other. Let's just hold each other. It's you then tried to, you know, upgrade that in the moment to, I'm a, can I fuck you? Please, can I fuck you out of, you know, horniness and desperation and desire and affection for your wife? That may have left her at this moment, at this stage of her passing through menopause, if indeed that's where she's at medically and she should see a gynecologist, she should see a doctor, she should have her hormone levels checked. But if where she's at right now is just completely cratered libido because of the menopause and the impact that's having on her physically and even emotionally, she may not want to lay with you if each time she lays with you, you then ask if you can fuck because then she's going to feel like she has mm-hmm. to continue to say no and she's rejecting you and she just would rather avoid having to reject you or and avoid having her nose rubbed and I'm sure what to her right now feels like her inadequacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can't. and I don't, I'm at the point now where I don't, I don't even bring up the subject. I'm just kind of waiting for her to, to bring it up or mm-hmm. make a move. Mm-hmm. So, And how long are you willing to wait is a question that you need to ask yourself. But I, but I don't, but I think you guys standing there on opposite sides of the room, not being intimate, not having sex, not talking, you waiting and her knowing that you're waiting. That's all really toxic and resentments are going to grow and they're going to solidify into just bad shit. Right. And that's right, why you yeah. two need to be talking and you need to be talking at a time when there's a disinterested third party there to mediate, hopefully a sex positive mm-hmm. one. I would send you to asect.org, A-A-S-E-C-T.org to find a sex positive couples counselor or therapist in your area. So someone there to mediate who's disinterested and, and a real conversation about how you can continue to be close, how you can continue to be intimate at this time. Is she willing to help you masturbate? Are you willing to, be with her without, even if you get a boner, you know, lay with her and be with her and and be physically close to her without in the moment attempting to initiate penetrative sex. Can she be with you and you can have a boner and she's not going to freak out? She's not going to then feel guilty? Tell her that you getting erect doesn't mean that she has to feel guilty about not doing anything with that erection? Because that's really the first building block toward reestablishing intimacy and maybe sex is to have encounters, to be close without any pressure on her to perform. And without any expectation on your part about it becoming sex. And for her to know that you don't, you're not going into it with any expectations. A hard dick doesn't necessarily mean that you suddenly have expectations or desires. It means that you enjoy being close to her and here's the proof. But you don't have to do anything with this dick right now. Because there, there are plenty of women who 
pass through menopause and some women go through menopause and they're hornier in menopause. Some women go through menopause and their libido's crater. But a lot of women pass through menopause and then have rich and rewarding sex lives. Then they really kick into gear. You can go to swingers parties as I have gone and you meet a lot of women who are definitely postmenopausal at swingers parties who are having the time of their postmenopausal no need to worry about fertility lives in those environments so that your mm-hmm. wife, however she's feeling right now, that isn't necessarily how she's going to feel always. But if it is how she's going to feel always, what accommodations or what accommodation is she willing to make to stay in this marriage, to stay with you? Because you guys are, you know, it's like a game of chicken or you're, you're headed to this point where somebody's going to have to lose. There's no middle position between not have sex and have sex. Mm-hmm. It's not have sex with you or have sex with somebody. Yeah. I like the idea of the canceling. That's, I think that's the st- the next step. It's definitely, definitely get into counseling. And your wife should, if she hasn't already, see your gynecologist, get a full checkup, get her hormone levels mm-hmm. checked. I hope she's done that already. I, I hope she's seeing to her health. She has She has been to the doctor. I, I didn't pry into what, what they discussed or what happened, but she has talked to her doctor about it, so... Okay, well, go to ASEC.org. Look up some counselors in your area. Have a conversation with them before you go in because you don't want to end up with a counselor who thinks the solution here is you should just cut your dick off or that you know if, if she's done, if one person's done with sex, then, then it's just too bad for the other person and they shouldn't have married this person 24 years ago and that one person has the right to unilaterally end another person's sexual or erotic life because that's just not true. And it's not functional. It's not going to, you know, if you pretend that that's true, if you pretend that you can live without sex for the rest of your life, you're just going to sabotage the marriage to get out of it so that you can have sex again. Because sex always wins in the end. Or in the front, yeah. Yeah. Sex always wins somehow, (laughs) somewhere, some orifice or other, sex wins. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to talk to a counselor because it's, right now, it, it, I'm at this guilty point where I feel guilty for wanting this, you know? And you shouldn't. It's not something that you chose to want. And you're in such pain and you you express such compassion for your wife that I bet that if you could reach in and flip a switch and not want this, you would. That you would make this sacrifice. But you actually can't flip that switch. So you're going to be driven crazy by denial and frustration or she's going to be driven crazy by guilt and being pestered by you for sex that she right now at least isn't able to do or want to do. Or you guys need to find a workaround that allows, gets her off the hook, allows you some release and then delays any calling of the question for a time. An accommodation is what's required. And I don't know what that might be for your wife, but just wishing you weren't sexual and wishing you were on the same page right now. That's not a plan. And that's not, that's not going to work right now. You're both making each other miserable because she can't give you what you want and you can't have anything. If you can see an occasional erotic masseuse and get jack, get jacked off every once in a while for some interest in contact, is that something your wife could live with or accept? It might be something that she actually, maybe after it comes to pass and she's no longer on the hook, no longer feeling guilty that she isn't that conflicted about that. She's grateful for that you're mm-hmm. able to get release, be happy, be home without her feeling like she's torturing you by keeping you caged. Right. 
Yeah, that's, that, I mean, and that's really, honestly, a road I really don't want to go down. Mm. You know, if I'm going to be intimate, I'd rather do it with her. Um, <laughs> you know, or take care of it myself. But, you know, there's only so much I can, there's only so many times I can take care of it myself. And, you know, hearing from you reminds me of a, a somebody whose letter I ran in my last book, American Savage. I wrote a whole essay based around his letter where he had an affair that saved his marriage. You know, we talk about affairs and we always talk about affairs that destroy marriages. We never talk about the affairs that save marriages because we never find out about those. And his wife mm-hmm. lost her libido, absolutely no interest in sex. They went around and around about it. He got online. He found a woman in a similar circumstance and he had a four-year affair. And after four years, his wife's libido suddenly just kicked the fuck back into gear for reasons they did not and do not understand. He ended the affair and reestablished sexual relationships with his wife who never found out about the affair, but if it hadn't been for the affair, he would have had to leave. Mm-hmm. And so there you go. An affair that mm-hmm. saved a marriage and he didn't tell his wife about it and he didn't ask her for her permission and he didn't talk about it with the couple's counselor. He just did it. Mm-hmm. We show loyalty to our partners with more than just our genitals. And if there's something you got to do to stay married and stay sane, Sometimes you got to do that thing. Yeah, I'm going to definitely try the counseling route to start. ASEC.org. Seems like the the healthy way to start. It is. Absolutely. First, that was my first bit of advice. I didn't, my first bit of advice wasn't have an affair. I'm not Ashley Madison. My first line of attack was couples counseling and talk this out. Yeah, that sounds good. Good luck, man. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm calling because I'm really conflicted. Two friends of mine, both amazing women, um, have been abused by a member of uh, our BDSM community. You know, the first time it happened, uh, he was living with a friend and then he like flipped out sort of out of nowhere. And so she kicked him out, which was good. I'm so glad that she was strong enough to do that. Um, and she warned uh, a couple of the people that he had been playing with at the time that he kind of went a little crazy. A friend of ours, former partner, um, sort of thought that maybe, you know, he'd go through therapy and he was sort of still around and hanging out with her. And he did go to therapy. Um, and then later, like a shit bag, like all abuser shit bag, he like, proclaimed that he was cured, right? But obviously he wasn't because a month or two later, he flipped his shit on her too. And I feel awful for both of them because I love them both so much. But on the other hand, my second friend doesn't really want to tell people in the community that this happened, even though he's sort of a name. And it really hurts me because there's a lot of people who might not know what he's capable of or that he does this. And it sort of puts a lot of other people in the community at risk, but it also sort of puts her at risk for being outed and other things. The community in in this area is sort of a bit fucked up. So sometimes, you know, every couple of months, there's sort of like a big blow up about somebody who has violated consent or uh you know, turned out to be a crazy sort of narcissistic liar or just like a really shitty human being who's sort of a rapist. And 
it's really concerning because a lot of people know these things ahead of time but don't say anything until it hits, you know, the point where people aren't willing to sort of take that anymore. And I'm really wondering whether there's a way to fix the culture around that. I think it's a lot of, like, celebrity worship, uh, you know, the next big, cool, edge player kind of thing. But I don't really know how to stop that sort of secretly toxic masculinity situation. Why have a BDSM, quote-unquote, community? Why have that life? Why have munches and mixers? Why have friends listed on sites like FetLife, on sites like Recon. The idea is to create a, a feedback loop that provides accountability. The idea is that people in to BDSM, particularly subs, are going to make themselves vulnerable to someone, give someone power over them, and they need some assurance, some way of gaining assurance that this person to whom they are making themselves vulnerable, this person who they are temporarily ceding their power to or giving power over them is safe, is sane, is not going to violate their consent. So the whole idea behind having a BDSM community, behind having uh, online communities is to facilitate exactly what you are talking about here, is to facilitate feedback. And that feedback is about reputation. And someone can get a terrible reputation. And someone who violates consent, someone who's a shitty liar, someone who blows up, someone who is poisoned with toxic masculinity kind of deserves a shitty reputation. Problem is, what do you do when that person is big and powerful in whatever community or scene that you're talking about and taking that person on could win you enemies? Well, you got to take the risk. You got to share the information that you have on hand. You say this person has blown up. You didn't make it clear whether that person blew up in the context of a BDSM scene where that person losing their shit is potentially really dangerous and harmful. People sometimes blow up. People sometimes have meltdowns. Someone that you grant power temporarily over you, someone who you allow to tie you up and to do things to you that are potentially harmful or dangerous if done incorrectly, that person blowing up in a scene much more problematic, much more consequential, much more worrying. That person blowing up or having a meltdown outside a scene might make you hesitate to give that person power over you temporarily in a scene lest they have that meltdown in a scene, blow up at you in a scene. And I think that's something that people need to take into account when they're deciding to whom they will make themselves vulnerable. So I would, if I were in your shoes, risk speaking up about this person. There are two sides to every story. It doesn't sound like I think this guy could mount a convincing defense based on what little you've shared with me, but there are two sides to every story and people whose reputations have been damaged by, and rightfully so damaged or dinged by accounts of bad actions, particularly in a BDSM context, they can make amends. They can get to work on themselves. They can even defend themselves from those charges if they feel they are baseless. And then people can make up their own minds about whether they want to play with that person. But I endorse speaking up and speaking out about a situation and a circumstance and a player like this because accountability to help create safety is the whole idea, the animating idea behind having a BDSM community 
in the first place. Finally, there is no fixing the culture, sadly. There is just mitigating for and controlling around the presence of deeply shitty people who exist everywhere and in every culture. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old straight male in the Northeast, and I'm in a great relationship. I've been in the relationship for a year, and it's really the best I've ever had. The sex is the best I've ever had, and I really, really like my girlfriend. That said, um, she has depressive episodes, and she had a really bad ex-boyfriend, which she spent a lot of our relationship getting over, and I've tried to be as supportive as I can be. Um, But she had a depressive episode unlike one I've ever seen Four months ago when um, we were going to my parents' house for the very first time, and I was nervous about it, but I was excited, and I I was nervous, but so she ended up acting really shitty the whole weekend, really just trying to, it felt like trying to get away from me and not spend time with me and my parents, and it all culminated in when on Saturday night, we were out with her friends in the area, and she had a major panic attack at like three in the morning and decided to stay with them to get over the panic attack rather than go home with me, uh, which was really terrible because then I had to justify to my friends and my parents the next morning why the very first night I ever brought a girl home, that girl kind of ditched me in the middle of the night. So she continued to act shitty all weekend until the very end of the weekend when my friend who was also uh, from the Northeast with me told me that she'd actually cheated on me the previous weekend. Uh, not told me about it, cheated on me after a party. Now, I've been cheated on before, and I always had this rule that if I if she, if she cheats on me, she just has to tell me about it, but she didn't do that. And so I brought that up to her, and she told me that she uh, blacked out and woke up in bed with another guy, but it was really just a horrible, horrible bus ride back. The following couple months were very, very difficult, and I was also really shitty because I was having a really hard time getting over it, and we both have enough ammunition to break up with each other. So that said, we've gotten back to the point where when we're together, we're really great, but we've got this opportunity to maybe go back to my parents' house together, and I'm very nervous about it. I'm very nervous she's going to treat me the same way. Um, It it really just, I'm already a little insecure, and it made me feel really abandoned and insecure, Uh, plus she's been away for the holiday and every time we're away from each other for a large period of time, these doubts really creep into my mind because of what happened a couple months ago. And it's just, I'm having a hard time getting past it because every time I bring it up, she gets very defensive and closed off and doesn't want to talk about it anymore. So, um, I guess if you could give me your advice of how to proceed. DTMFA was the first thing that came to mind as I listened to your call. Weird, different, to get this call from a dude. Usually it's a call from a woman who says, I'm so in love with my boyfriend and my husband, such a wonderful person. We have a wonderful relationship. And then they rattle off a long list of what I would regard as relationship extinction level events. Look, depressive episodes or depression, you know, shitty ex-boyfriend, panic attacks. These are real things. And people struggle with mental illness. People struggle with depression. People struggle with the damage done by abusive exes. But all of those things together are not never-ending get-out-of-jail-free cards for being shitty yourself to the next person that you happen to be with. Your girlfriend can't point to these things as, as if they absolve her. She can't point to these things to avoid conversing with you about 
the wrongs that she's done to you, perhaps because of these things, but still the wrongs that she's done to you. You guys have to be able to talk about these things so you can come to some sort of terms, agreement, so you can feel safe and secure with each other. And it doesn't, frankly, sound like you feel safe or secure with her. You're afraid to take her home again. Every time you guys are away from each other, the doubts creep back in. That's sometimes a sign. That's sometimes your gut saying, you know, you're better off without her. Now that we're here alone, just you and me, just you and me, your guts, I'm telling you that I like it better this way. But if you want to give her one more chance, you say you time is coming again to go home, to see your parents, to re-meet the family. You're worried that you might have a panic attack. You're worried that you might run off and get blackout drunk and fuck somebody else or whatever it is that you're worried about. The only way to determine whether that's what will happen again is to go back to your family and see if it happens again. But this time, if you go back to your family and it happens again, really think you need to regard it as disqualifying, not disqualifying of her humanity, not proof that she's a terrible, awful, no good person. Proof, though, that at least at this moment, at this time, she is not in good working order. She is not able to be in and sustain a relationship. She can't meet your emotional needs. She can't fulfill the obligations that come bundled with being officially in a relationship with somebody. And she needs to be single for a while and get a therapist and work on her depression, her panic attacks. She needs to think about are there medications that she needs to be on. She needs to have somebody, not her current boyfriend, process the damage done by her previous boyfriend. And then who knows, maybe if she's single for a year or two and a year or two from now, you are still single and she is in better working order. You guys can reconnect and see if that old spark is still there and pick back up where you left off after she's done the work that it doesn't sound like she's done. And I think she's made clear that so long as you're there, she's not going to get started on a uh, quick PS about what I mean when I talk about you got to be in good working order. I sometimes get angry emails from people accusing me of suggesting that people have to be flawless, perfect, without insecurities, without mental health issues, without baggage to be in relationship. That is not what I mean at all. Nobody is perfect. We all have our damage. We all have our baggage. We all have our insecurities, myself included. Good working order, though, means good working order. That car, the brakes work. You can put it in drive and you can go places. It is in good working order. It is not perfect and just off the assembly line and polished by the German technicians or whoever the fuck built your car. But it, it is functional. If you aren't functional, you got work to do before you can be in a relationship. You are not in good working order. But yeah, we are all of us, each of us individually, basket cases in our own ways. And you can be a bit of a basket case and still be in good working order. Hi, Dan. I was and still am a Hillary supporter. My neighbor loves Trump and has Trump signs, a big Trump flag, and he even built a wooden jail and put a life-size Hillary dummy in it. Every time he'd up his game with something new, I would put a new Hillary sign up or a flag. We never talked about it. It was a completely unspoken battle. Our houses are very close to each other, so it's hard to ignore each other's display. I still have some of my Hillary signs up. If I have to look at his crap, I want him to have to look at mine. Should I take my signs down or leave them up forever because I don't have a reason to take them down? If I do take them down, I feel like he won the battle. He won. Your neighbor won because Donald Trump, by a trick of our racist electoral college, 
won the election, even though he lost a popular vote by nearly 3 million votes. Your neighbor kind of won this one. I think you should take your Hillary gear down. If there's anything you want to leave up in your yard, perhaps you get a scorecard and you put on that Donald Trump's approval ratings, which as he was being sworn in, were historically the lowest approval ratings ever measured for an incoming president. And I can't imagine that with the chaos that we've seen thus far, the chaos, the conflicts of interests, the scandals thus far, more scandals in just a few weeks than Barack Obama had in his entire eight-year administration. Can't imagine that number is ever going to be in the positive territory. So if you want to leave one thing in your yard, don't make it Hillary Clinton. Make it Donald Trump's abysmal and worsening approval ratings. Hey, Dan, how's it going? Longtime listener here. I found the podcast a while ago from a great friend of mine. And I'm coming to you with a simple question that I feel is a bit of a response to two podcasts ago about straight men attracted to male to female trans women who still have their penises. I actually am what I consider a straight male who is interested in that sort of thing. And I'm also very, very much interested in cis women. But a question that I have for you as well is, maybe this is a bit more of a kink, maybe this is a bit more of a fetish side, but I also notice I'm pretty attracted to cross-dressers. I know that that is in fact a man dress up in women's clothing, but I'm not going to lie, I've hooked up with one before. They were very feminine acting, very feminine looking, and was very excited by that. If you gave me the same individual without the clothing, without the makeup, without the wig, it just doesn't get my dick going. If that's, I hope that's not too much to say on air, but you know, that's a simple question. So, where would I land in the spectrum of things? You know, I find myself romantically attracted to women and trans women, and I've noticed I just seem to have a really, really, I guess, kink or fetish behind crossdressers. Is that pretty much all it is? Am I overthinking it? Am I stressing out over it? I did drag for nearly 10 years. And we would joke, those of us who are drag queens, and drag queens aren't cross-dressers and drag queens aren't trans women and cross-dressers aren't trans women, just to be clear. But my drag queen pals and I would joke about a certain kind of straight guy that we encountered in the clubs on the regular who had girlfriends or wives often at home, but they were just really, really fucking into men in drag into gay men in drag, into drag queens, not the least bit interested in us out of drag, but so into us in drag. And what did we call those guys? We allowed them to continue to describe themselves as straight and we called them panty chasers. That was how we ID'd them. And some panty chasers were so burdened by and paralyzed by, well, not quite paralyzed because there they were in the club chasing us around, but really fucked up with shame that they just acted out in awful and weird ways that were discomforting. But every once in a while, you would meet the together, self-aware, self-accepting panty chaser who reminds me of you in a way, a guy who could say, not into men, into women, but there's just something about a, about a drag queen that does it for me. Something about dick presented on that platter does it for me. And I think that's what you are technically. I think you're bi for a little dick, but you want your dick sort of penis laundered, you know, like money laundering, but for dick. You want dick laundering and you need dick presented to you on a platter of markers and totems that say lady, that says effort to present these male bits in a female package with a bunch of female bling. And it allows you to 
have the dick that you clearly crave every once in a while without having to have dude attached to it or without having to have too much dude attached to it. Just enough dude for you to feel like you're transgressing in a way or violating gender norms or your own sort of identity that you're crossing this boundary, that you're doing something that transgresses not gender norms but transgresses your own ideas of who you are sexually and that is for you arousing. You don't sound particularly conflicted about it unlike most of the panty chasers that I would run into at the Brass Connection, which we all called the ass infection, back in the day here in Seattle when I was doing drag. And I'd like to think that perhaps the discourse we've had here in Savage Love all these years has helped us create a world where there are more guys like you, more guys who are like, I have this weird quirk. I'm straight, but this, this is the way I like dick. This one way I like dick, but I'm straight identified because I round myself up to straight. And that's okay. So what do I think you are? I think you're a straight guy. I think you're a straight guy. Who likes dick every once in a while, but you want that dick in drag and lucky for you, you live in a world where you can get it. Hi, um, I'm calling in response to the gentleman who asked if since twins ran in his family, if there are people who would pay more for sperm from him, uh, the answer is no, because sorry to say it, dude, but your sperm has nothing to do with the production of twins. Uh, the conception of twins happens in the uterus. So it has to do with conditions there, either how many eggs are released or whether uh, a zygote splits, producing identical twins, which is much rarer. And yeah, no, the amount of sperm has nothing to do with it. Sorry, dude. Hi, I'm calling in response to the burlesque dancer in episode 537. Dan was right on the money, but I wanted to highlight one thing. You said you still feel drawn to your controlling ex. Of course you do. When you're in an abusive relationship, the good moments provide relief so strong that it feels like happiness. It feels like love, but it isn't. It's just another tactic to keep you under control. You can't fix him or the relationship. So arm yourself with that knowledge and plan things to do when you feel like you miss him. When he contacts you, don't respond. There is tremendous power in silence. He'll get bored and move on to someone he can victimize more easily. Every time you make contact, you delay your own healing. I say all of this from experience. So stay strong, keep dancing, and keep making music. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the caller from episode 537 talking about um, how women should be more vocal about their abortions. And I've been having this thought recently that men should also be, have, be more vocal about the abortions that they've had. You know, I personally haven't had one, but friends of mine that I've been in close contact with have gone through abortions with their partners, and it has just as much of an effect on the men as it does on the women, um, both positively and of the, like, emotional repercussions that they feel um, in deciding to have that abortion, and then how they feel about it afterwards and how it's affected their lives. And I do feel like these issues are just as much relevant to any man who likes having sex with women who are fertile that these are reproductive rights that we're all fighting for. And any man who's on Tinder, who's having sex with women, should be standing and marching with us and fighting for our rights to have abortions because they get to have that abortion as well. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. 
Want to hear me rant a greater length about politics? Check out the Strangers Blabbermouth podcast, where I rant every week with host Eli Sanders and millennial crybaby Rip Smith. Want to see my amateur porn film festival? Go to humpfilmfest.com to find out when Hump is coming to you in your town. Be sure to read my weekly columns, Savage Love, and newspapers all over the country, including the Portland Mercury. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Adam Saffron on Twitter at Adam Saffron. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.